Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Sydney. It's such a blessing to study God's Word together and to praise Him. He is glorious, isn't He? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll be in Luke 24, starting in verse 33, and a couple of announcements. I see that you all are wearing the masks. That's good. So still for a week or two, we might have to uh, observe this until it's changed. But uh, thanks for braving the conditions to, to meet and to contribute to the, the health of the body of Christ. It's such an encouragement to me and to everyone. Such a blessing um, for you to be here. Also, this week we're kicking off several of the weekly events. So a lot of the ministries are starting to go into full swing. So Friday nights, we have Solid at Church, the Word uh, Bible Study and Tribe is on Friday. The Women's Bible Study is on Wednesday uh, in the morning. Is it 10.30 or 11? 10.30. 10.30 a.m., going through the book of John. And uh, so feel free to come out and be a part of those ministries and be encouraged. And Bob, your home group is still going, right? Yep. Is there an online option? It is online. It is online. So... Okay, yeah, no mass required to join online, so that's good. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your goodness to us, that Jesus came to be our Savior, that he embraced the call that the Father put upon him, that he drank that cup of your wrath and judgment so that we could be forgiven, that we could have new life through the gospel. And we're so thankful, we're so grateful. Lord, our greatest sacrifices are so small and insignificant compared to the sacrifice of your only begotten Son. Thank you for demonstrating your love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I pray that our hearts would be filled with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving for all you've done, that we would be those who bless you, who praise you, and thank you for how great you are and all that you've accomplished. And thank you for choosing us, Lord, and working through us, and for the good God that you are and how faithful uh, we, we honor you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a saying that if something is too good to be true, it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, we've all seen enough flashing buttons on the webpage that says, congratulations, you are the upteenth visitor and you have a reward. You know, click here. We're like, no, I know that this is a, this is a scam. This is not truthful. Or you've received an email from that cancer-stricken widow who calls you beloved and dear, and you're unknown to them, but they have 4.4 million in gold bullion that they just have to offload, and you are the one that they want to give it to. Uh, or you may hear a salesman who's telling you about, hey, you can receive this great thing for nothing, and you're like, okay, when is it coming? When are we going to start talking about what this is going to actually cost me? Because I know I'm not getting anything for free. And when you've fallen for a scam, when you've been taken in, we can become hardened, we can become cynical to a legitimate offer that God gives us. And we start to wonder, hmm, that doesn't, I don't know, I'm not sure about this. And because we've been wounded, because we've been hurt, because we've been led astray by people, we can resist being drawn into the truth of God's word and what he said and what he's promised because we're not feeling it. Putting our hope and trust in man is a snare, but trusting in the Lord, trusting in Christ and his word 
That is wisdom. And God is faithful. He will keep his word. Now, we've reached the end of Luke 24, where Jesus had been walking along the road with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus began to reveal himself to many of his followers. When the disciples had seen Jesus on that cross, their hopes and dreams were crushed. They believed that Jesus would be the one who would redeem Israel, the one who would put them back on the, the map, really, as a world, uh, it's a, I guess, a prosperous, powerful nation. And when bad things happen, we try to look on the bright side. We try to justify why, okay, it's all right because of this reason. But in their sorrow and misery, they could not. They could not think of a good thing that could come out of Jesus' death. And to these confused and hopeless and despairing disciples, Jesus showed himself. He revealed himself to them. And not one of them said, I told you so, or I knew it. I knew this is what was happening all along. No, that would have been a lie. And Jesus was alive, and he knows the hearts of men. So he's like, hmm? Like, I know that. So... Nobody knew. Nobody could have picked this, that Jesus would do this. He made personal appearances to many on the day of his resurrection, to Mary Magdalene, to Simon Peter, to the women who came to the tomb, to those disciples that walked along the road to Emmaus. And that same hour, it said, when Cleopas and his companion realized that Jesus was risen from the dead, they left Emmaus, they went back to Jerusalem. And we read in Luke 24, 35, and they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. As they were walking along the road and they were sad, they were trying to figure things out and reason, Jesus said, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he, he began to open up the scriptures to them and showed how the Messiah had to suffer and he had to die so that he could accomplish uh, the salvation, he had, to, he had to suffer before entering into his glory. They already had the promises of God's word, but God gave them physical evidence too. And he did this for the disciples, picking up in verse 36. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. The Gospel of Mark, it says expressly that the disciples did not believe that Jesus had rose from the dead despite the evidence of those eyewitnesses who came. So they said, Jesus appeared to us on the road. Jesus opened the scriptures to us. When he sat down to eat, he broke that bread and prayed, and then he disappeared, and we knew that he was risen. And they're like, nope, don't believe it. The women, they had spoken excitedly of the empty tomb, that angels had spoken to them, that Mary had met Jesus. Peter and John run to the tomb, but they don't find a body, and they're scratching their heads going, what has happened? We're not sure. The disciples along that road to Emmaus were not the only ones slow to believe. The apostles were slow to believe. And as they're begging those unbelieving apostles that they have seen Jesus, believe that he's risen, Jesus suddenly, unexpectedly, 
just appears in the middle of their meeting and says, peace to you. Were they convinced? No. <laughs> they were frightened. They were afraid and cried out. I, I remember them on the Sea of Galilee. They thought they saw a spirit, and it says they cried out terrified. And the, the spirit was outside the boat. Now it's right in the room with them. And they are scared to death. They suppose they had seen a spirit. And Jesus says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? If you had been there, if you're one of those people who was filled with fear at the appearance of Jesus, how would you answer that? Why are you troubled? How you answer this question has all to do with who you believe Jesus is and who Jesus is to you. Because in light of Jesus, that being him, how could we justify fear, terror for our lives? We can only justify fear when we doubt the goodness, power, and sovereignty of God. Hadn't Jesus given them power over every spirit? If they supposed they had seen a spirit, they already had power over all spirits. Why were they afraid if Jesus was alive? If that power that Jesus gave them was genuine? They were afraid because they didn't believe Jesus was alive. And we can be fearful for the same reason. Theoretically, theologically, we believe that Jesus is alive, but we may not believe he has absolute power over our lives. That in the moment when we are afraid, we forget that he's with us and he won't ever leave or forsake us. In a moment, we can be like a skittish wild animal without understanding that just runs for cover, tries to get away, and rely upon ourselves for deliverance. So if, if they had examined their fear in light of their risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who had atoned for the sins of the world, who had overcome sin and death, it really was a foolish and unjustified reaction. Saying, oh yeah, I really shouldn't be afraid right now. But it's good that if they, it doesn't say that they even admitted that they were afraid. But it was unbelief that led them to fear. It robbed them of courage. It kept them from praising God and celebrating their Savior who was alive and for them. They said they would believe when they saw Jesus, like they were looking for a body. Well, here he is in, in the flesh, and they still don't believe. Only Jesus could help them conquer that sin of unbelief that held them captive in that moment. And remember, these are the apostles. These are people that God had chosen who struggled with doubt and unbelief. Jesus offered his hands and his feet to identify him by those wounds that bore witness of his suffering on Calvary. And he says, touch, confirm to see that I am real, that I am flesh and bone. I'm not a phantom. And I like what the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary said. It made an interesting observation. He says not flesh and blood, for blood is the life of the animal and corruptible body, which cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But flesh and bones implying the identity, but with diversity of laws of the resurrection body. Jesus had been born into a mortal body, but he was raised in a glorified human body. And because of medical and scientific discoveries and study, we have a basic understanding of systems in the body, how they work, uh, perhaps at a very fundamental level. 
we know like the circulatory and the respiratory and the nervous system, right? Your brain sends a signal to your heart to beat, which circulates blood. As you breathe, the oxygen is carried to supply uh, oxygen to the cells in your body. And then as you exhale, the carbon dioxide leaves and the cycle is repeated. We can understand that. At some point, all of these systems will naturally fail. But the glorified body of Jesus, it didn't re rely upon the circulation of blood or breathing or eating for survival. And I love how C.S. Lewis talked about how Jesus appeared in the midst. He was able to do so because he was the most real thing there. He says, when you look at a bank of fog, it looks so solid. It looks like an object, but a person can walk right through that and they disappear into the fog. And it's like our bricks, our glass, our bars, they appear solid to us and the ground feels solid under our feet, but it's all transitory. It's all going to fade away. And Jesus, because he endures, he just passes right through it like nothing. He can just appear. And it's no surprise that the God who knows the secret hearts of men, he's able to appear in their midst and to discern, to ask that question that needs to be answered, that people need to consider and think about. Why am I afraid? Why am I doubting right now when Jesus is standing right here? People can lock themselves in their unbelief, but no one can lock Jesus out. He reveals himself to those who love him. We, we think like God revealing himself depends upon my level of belief. These disciples did not believe, but Jesus is there. He came to them. He spoke to them, and he revealed himself to them. Continuing in verse 41. But while they, did st they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. The disciples are astonished at the presence of Jesus. They don't believe it seems too good to be true. They were so joyful at the prospect. And it's like they were so low, they were so depressed and discouraged that the idea that Jesus could be alive, it was just too much to process for them. They saw him, they heard him speak, they touched him, but it was still unbelievable. It was amazing that Jesus was alive. And this is really a good testimony of the reality of Christ's resurrection because his own disciples weren't believing that he had risen from the dead. They had to be convinced. And so God's given us to an unbelieving world um, to bring this message of salvation, that Jesus is alive, that he did conquer death, that he did defeat sin and the consequences of it. And we can have eternal life through him. It's like he's paved the way for eternity for us to know God and live with him. The slowness of belief in these disciples, it kind of reminds me of an article I've read about the behavior of donkeys. Has anyone here ever owned a donkey? No, just curious. I would talk to you later if you had. But they have a reputation for being stubborn, for digging in their heels, for not wanting to go places. But thinking and processing is what they're doing. A horse only has, so we think of like sheep and goats as being really similar, they're completely different, like from cats to dogs. Very different. Same thing with horses and donkeys. Horses, when startled, they flee. That's it. There's no decisions to be made. They flee. But a donkey does a risk assessment, kind of like not moving until I have figured this out. 
And it takes them some time at times to come to a conclusion. But it's like, am I going to flee, uh, freeze, or fight? So a donkey makes a very good uh, protector of sheep or other animals. Uh, it will actually attack a wolf that's coming into the flock. So the disciples, they're kind of like the donkey. They froze. They're like thinking, okay, wait a second. What is going on here? I need to process this. I need to think it through. And Jesus is so patient with them. He doesn't beat on them. He doesn't uh, you know, shout at them for their unbelief. He says, peace to you. And he stood there. He ate. He said, is there any food? I'll eat it. It's not going to drop on the ground. I can actually hold things. I can eat things. I have a body like yours. Now, broiled fish with honeycomb, that's not a combination I've ever thought sounded appetizing, but it's food that they would have handy at the time. He held and ate that food. And I think about the time when Peter went to Cornelius. He mentioned the importance of this in him coming to belief that Jesus was actually alive in Acts 10, 39 through 41. He said to them, And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Jesus ate and drank with Peter and the apostles. He says he didn't eat and drink with everyone. But he ate and drank with us, and now we as eyewitnesses are speaking to you that he is alive and he did these things. And on the basis of Peter's eyewitness account, Cornelius and his household believed. And we have this opportunity too because we have seen that he is alive. We have experienced him personally. And he has chosen us to be those who convey the truth of the gospel and of the reality of his resurrection to a lost world, to an unbelieving world, or to remind believers who are doubting of the truth of Christ and his word. It's so important that we testify to the reality of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection. Peter didn't emphasize joy, peace, or forgiveness or acceptance from God as the foundation of why they should believe in Jesus. He talked about his reality, that he was there, that he did things, that he said things, that he rose from the dead. So our faith in Christ, it's established on the facts of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, just like the foundation of a house has to be laid before the walls can be erected and the windows fitted. The rest, contentment, the peace of God we experience, they are the results of faith, not reasons for faith. There is a difference. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. The disciples had heard Jesus preach about these things that had taken place, and he fulfilled in the law, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. So in all the Old Testament, we can see 
uh, verses that point to Jesus Christ and who he is, what he would accomplish. They were familiar with these passages. He says, these are the things I spoke to you. It's not like, guys, you weren't able to hear it at the time, so I withheld that. No, he told them. But it's like their understanding was foggy. They couldn't really connect it with reality. Can you relate with that? When you read something in the Bible, you're like, I I don't really know what this means, and I don't know what it means to me, and I don't see how it relates to Jesus or my current situation. It was like their eyes were veiled. They could just see a faint outline. But verse 45, it says, He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. The word comprehend, it means to put together. So you're, you're assembling this, these verses to make sense of what they mean. Scriptures that spoke of His suffering. Scriptures that spoke of His coming glory. His resurrection, His victory over sin and Satan and hell and death. And unless Jesus opens our eyes and our understanding, we can't understand the things that the Bible says. When we buy flat-packed furniture, there is assembly required. Now, I'm not a... I've grown to be better at assembling flat-packed stuff. Seeing the picture on the outside, knowing what the final dimensions are, that's not really helpful to know how to use all those barrel bolts and scraps of wood and screws and dowels. And that's why in the box there's always uh, an assembly instruction, like step-by-step, how to assemble. And it will tell you the parts list, the parts that you need. And it will have little markings and pre-drilled holes and pieces of wood. You're like, okay, this barrel fits in here and it goes around that bolt. All right, this is beginning to make sense. And by the time you have muddled your way through the first item, you are well on your way to having the amount of time on the second. Now imagine how much harder it would be to assemble that flat pack furniture if an unmarked box appeared on your doorstep with your name on it, but there was no instructions. Now, some of you might feel pretty confident. You're like, oh, I like a good challenge. I can figure out a puzzle. I've done enough of these. I can do them in my sleep. But how well would you do if the wood was not pre-cut, the steel was not punched, there were no holes, there were no pre-drilled marks? Now, you'd be able to use the parts for something. You're probably that resourceful that you could say, oh, well, I could use this piece of wood over here. But you could never construct what was intended by the builder, right? There's no way. You wouldn't even know if it's supposed to be a table or a, uh, a cupboard or a chair. It would be difficult if nothing was cut out, if nothing was marked, if nothing was labeled. You just had a bunch of parts. Well, understanding God's word is similar to this. The analogy falls down because God's word is far more, infinitely more complex than flat-packed furniture. It is the word of God. It is the wisdom of God. We can read the words translated into English in our Bibles, but unless Jesus opens our understanding, it remains a closed book to us. We cannot understand it. We cannot apply it because it's spiritually discerned. And it's not just a priest or a pastor who has this gift. It is for all believers that Jesus has revealed himself to to have an understanding of what these words mean and what they mean to you. Jesus revealed with the law of prophets, the the Psalms, what they had to say about him. And he showed how it was necessary that the Messiah would suffer and die. 
For his hearers, this was all in the past, but there was also things that they were called to do in the future. That it was necessary for repentance and remission of sins to be preached in Jesus' name to all nations starting in Jerusalem. So repentance, remission, or forgiveness of sins should be preached in Jesus' name, Jerusalem starting, but then everywhere. It was to go out into the whole world. And God's chosen the foolishness of preaching to bring forth the wisdom of God to all the nations through the gospel, that we are sinners who must repent of our sin, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, He's the only means of forgiveness, and that when we trust in Him, we can be born again and have eternal life. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but repentance and forgiveness are key parts of the gospel message. Jesus came to seek and save sinners. If you're not going to own your sinfulness, why do you need a Savior? Jesus, he preached repentance frequently in Luke 13. He repeated over and over, except you repent, you will likewise perish. Repentance, that's a change of mind that results in a changed life. So it's like, I believe what the Bible says, that I am wrong, I am a sinner, I need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. Turning from your sin and then choosing to do good instead. Choosing to do God's will instead of what is sinful. And it's the believing, repentant heart that can receive the atonement that Jesus has provided. I like what Matthew Henry said about the preaching of repentance. He says, go tell a guilty world that there is hope concerning them. There is hope in Jesus. That turn or burn message, have you guys ever heard that? Turn or burn? If it rhymes, it must be true. Like, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit type thing. If it rhymes, it's, it's spot on. That suggests, this turn or burn, it suggests our salvation depends upon my effort and ignores the hope that we have in Jesus. It's true to an extent, but it's limited. The fact is, we need Jesus, and He has come to give us life through Him and forgiveness. Severe warnings of hell and the promises of uh, heaven, they all fall flat unless people believe in Jesus and repent. We have to respond to the gospel, but it's through faith in Christ that we receive the salvation because we don't escape the torment of hell or earn the blessing of heaven by repentance alone. We have to be born again by faith in Jesus, and then we're able to repent because he's helping us to repent of our sin and to receive the forgiveness that he has offered. Paul went through the city of Athens, and he came across an idol to the unknown God. There were tons of idols there, but he said, he used it as a, a platform to say, I've gone through your city, I can see you're really religious, and you even have an idol to the unknown God. So since you don't know him, I'm going to declare him to you. And uh, we know that God was not to be depicted in pictures or in sculptures because he is God. He's not like anything that's been made. And so he declared Christ to them. And this is how he concluded his remarks in Acts 17, 30, and 31. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. 
So he preached Christ crucified, raised from the dead, and he preached repentance. The message was first preached in Jerusalem, it's preached in Athens, and now it's been preached throughout the whole world. The truth of the message has not changed. Jesus is alive and God commands all people, you and me, to repent because the day of judgment is coming. And Jesus is the one God has ordained to administer that judgment because he is righteous. Now, if you're like me, you don't like being judged, right? You're like, I don't want you judging me. And there's probably several reasons for this. The first is we don't believe we've done anything wrong. Like, I don't think you're, you have the right to tell me that I've done something wrong. That's one reason. Uh, no one has the right to suggest otherwise. Another one is credibility. We doubt the credibility or the authority of the one judging us. We also realize that uh, nobody is perfect and they're as guilty as we are. And so we say, well, you have no right to judge me because you're no better than me. Do some of these kind of resonate with how sometimes you feel? Or am I just missing it completely? All right, so I'm kind of getting close. And also, we don't like to be confronted with even legitimate faults, right? Even when we know we've done something wrong, we don't want anyone telling us or pointing out that we've done something wrong. That grates on us. That irritates. And we don't like the idea of standing before a judge when we're guilty, when he will throw the book at us when we're most vulnerable. We don't want to receive that kind of judgment either. According to Scripture, Jesus came and died for the sins of the world, so all who believe in him will be born again and saved. And when we own our sin now and repent, Jesus will forgive us today. We can be cleansed. There is hope for us. If we refuse to repent, we remain in our sin. One day we will be judged by Jesus. All our sins will be exposed, and we will perish and God has placed before all people a way of life and death, that if we will believe in Jesus, we will be saved. The, our risen Savior is the way of life, and everyone has that choice. Jesus continued in Luke 24, 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Before Jesus departed, he told them to remain in Jerusalem until they received the promise of the Father, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Jesus also appeared later, we read, in Acts 1-3. This is what Luke said of him, his appearance. It says, "...to whom he presented himself alive after suffering by many infallible proofs, having been seen by them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God." So after Jesus' resurrection, for 40 days, he appeared to them, he preached to them, he taught them. And he was teaching concerning the kingdom of God. And the disciples are very curious about, well, when is this going to happen? And this is in Acts 1, 7, and 8. They said, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he mentioned again the promise of the Father. Um, he would do that, it would be mentioned, excuse me, in Acts 2, verse 39. But after the day of Pentecost, 
the disciples, about 120, were in an upper room when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And in tongues unknown to them, they spoke forth the praises of God. And people from every nation that was around understood what they were saying and said, these people are Galileans. They're unlearned. How are they doing this? And then Peter used that opportunity to preach to them. And if you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 36, this is how he concluded concerning the promise of the Father that Jesus spoke of in Luke 24. Acts 2, starting in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as our Lord will call. Repentance, right? So he's preaching repentance. He's preaching Christ crucified who brings remission of sins. So Peter is doing exactly what Jesus told him to. And this is what we ought to do as well. To walk in this ourselves, to be those who repent, to be those who believe, to be those who are filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can be his ambassadors to this unbelieving world. So this promise of the Father, we see that at work in Peter's life and it caused his efforts to be fruitful where the Holy Spirit spoke through him. This baptism or infilling to overflowing, it wasn't just for the Jews but for the Gentiles because when Peter was speaking to Cornelius in his house, they believed and the Holy Spirit came upon them as well. And they said, man, they're obviously filled with the Holy Spirit. They've been regenerated. Shouldn't we uh, have them baptized as well and identification with Christ? Now, some feel uncomfortable about this promise of the Father, yet affirm we must be born again. So it's like, you know, being baptized with the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit, that makes me a bit uneasy because I'm not, I don't really understand it. We're kind of like the donkey. We get those stiff legs and don't want to be pulled anywhere, don't want to be pushed anywhere, and we want to think things through, and we can't really make sense of how this could work or when it will happen or, or why God would use this means. But it, it's an interesting thing that we would um, receive the Holy Spirit for spiritual regeneration, to be born again, and salvation, yet dig in our heels to be empowered by Him to be used by him to exercise spiritual gifts according to his will. And you go, well, I'm really not into, you know, that spiritual stuff. Then you're not really into the gospel, and you're not really into being born again or understanding or teaching God's word or having the fruit of the Spirit produced in your life because all of those are spiritual. So we need the Holy Spirit. We need to be born again. He's the one who fills us. He does the filling. He does the guiding. He does the empowering so that we can accomplish his will. It's the same way that we receive the Holy Spirit, that we receive salvation, because we ask. And God, who gives good gifts to those who ask him, will give us the Holy Spirit without measure. And it's like the Bible, which was once a closed book to us, begins to open. As we repent of the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit begins to be manifested and grow in our lives. That love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, that we can't do by trying to do it. 
Because you can try to be loving, but that's as much as you'll ever be able to do. You're like, well, I'm trying. But if it's God's love uh, operating through you, then it's God who does the work. And we almost get out of the way and are able to give God the glory he deserves. Because it's God who loves us. It's God who loves people through us. Let's continue in Luke 24, 51. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried into heaven, up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Jesus is blessing the people and unexpectedly and suddenly he was parted from them. He, was, he ascended into heaven. If you turn to Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 9, Luke, he further describes the scene. So we have a bit of an overview in Luke 24, but then Luke goes into more detail in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. He had just talked about them receiving the Holy Spirit. And in verse 9, it says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus, he's suddenly, unexpectedly taken up from them. And no one knows the day or the hour when Jesus will unexpectedly and suddenly return. Jesus is blessing the people upon his departure. He says in the same manner he will return, so he will also come with blessing upon the church when we are caught up and gathered to him in the rapture. After the great tribulation, we know from the scriptures, Jesus will come to, to judge the earth in righteousness and establish his kingdom. And we're comforted by knowing Jesus was parted from his disciples, but they were not parted from him because he would never leave or forsake them. He would send the Holy Spirit to fill them. And isn't that awesome that we never need to be apart from Jesus? We can be separated from people we love, but we are never separated from God because his love is eternal. After seeing Jesus ascend to heaven, what was the disciples' response? It says in Luke that they worshipped Jesus and they weren't guilty of idolatry because Jesus is God. They didn't keep staring up into the heavens like going, when is he going to come back? Or they were sad like, oh, he's risen but he's not here anymore. They weren't bummed out. They returned to Jerusalem, it says, praising and blessing God. We can be those who, who are often asking for blessing but how about us being a blessing to God? Like saying, God, I want to bless you. I want to be the one in whom you are well pleased. Jesus, who was crucified, who died for the sins of the world, who rose from the dead, who ascended to heaven, he paved the way for them to know God, for them to draw near to God. Though Jesus was no longer with them, through the Holy Spirit he would send. Matthew Henry says, Nothing prepares the mind for the receiving of the Holy Spirit than holy joy and praise. Fears are silence 
sorrows sweetened and allayed, and hopes kept up. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to receiving the Holy Spirit, the words of James come to mind where he says, you have not because you ask not. Or when you ask, you're asking amiss with selfish intentions. Because we want a blessing. We want, I mean, Esau wanted a blessing. We can want the blessing, but are we wanting to be a blessing to God and to others? God fills us with the Holy Spirit, not so our will can be done, but so His will be done, so He will be glorified, so the church will be edified wherever God has you in whatever role He places you. So in a global pandemic, when there's job concerns, financial insecurity, political upheaval, personal tragedy, it is easy to justify fear, worry, and sorrow, and hopelessness. But believer, don't forget that Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. He has the power to save and to deliver from sin. He can reveal himself to you. He can open your understanding to comprehend his word. And he stands as Lord over all heaven and earth. And he asks you today, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? How do you answer that if he is your sovereign? If he is your king? We ought to praise and bless him. And if, we're not born, if you're not born again, if you don't know the forgiveness of Jesus, the joy and rest, it's no surprise that you're troubled or worried. But let's look upon our risen King. Let's confess Him as Lord and Savior. Let us repent and be those who walk in His victory with eyes full of faith, rejoicing even in the midst of difficulty. Because He has conquered death, He lives. And we live because of Him. We live through Him. He is our life. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it directs us in how we ought to live in light of these things, of who Jesus is, having repented and received forgiveness. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The one case when something seems too good to be true, but it actually is true, is the gospel. That we have life and love and joy forevermore in our Savior Jesus. He provides undying hope by His grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to be our Savior and for giving us life, for coming to us when we are those confused and hopeless and sorrowing disciples who were so filled with unbelief because of their pains. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts to comprehend the scriptures, to be able to put together what you've said with how we ought to live and how we ought to please you. Lord, may we be those who praise you, who are a blessing to you. We are so blessed already because of you and you bless us every day. May we be that blessing and a blessing not just to you, but to others as we seek to serve you and lead others to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the power of the gospel, that when we're born again and when we repent, you forgive us, you help us, you guide us into all truth, and you use us. Lord, thank you that because we are alive 
you have plans yet for us to accomplish here in the body of Christ and beyond. And so we humbly submit ourselves to you, Lord. We are wholly surrendered. We desire to be. You know how, how the battle can rage in our flesh against this. But Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We praise and thank you for what you've done. And we pray that through your spirit, you will do in and through us what is impossible for us, that we would no longer be like the donkey that is uh, stiff-legged and resistant and reluctant to go the way that you are leading, but that we would heed you, that we would follow you, that we rejoice and praise you, for you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.